0: All right, well, this is uh, a little continuation from last week. I don't know how many of you got a chance to read uh, either James or Galatians. We're going to go on in James, actually, specifically James chapter 2. Last week, or the past few weeks, what Pastor Bruzek was very helpful in helping us define was uh, the person of Christ, or who is Jesus. So he spent, you you may remember from his outline, you can go back and look at it if you keep them. He began with, there is one Jesus... And if you get Jesus right, you get the rest of it right. Uh, I'm continually surprised. In fact, I said this a couple weeks ago to a, to a women's Bible study. When I first became a pastor, I thought, you know, if people don't understand the Eucharist or don't understand absolution or don't understand the Christian life, they just don't understand the Eucharist, absolution, or the Christian life. But I've begun to realize that if people don't understand certain aspects of the Christian life, they actually don't understand Jesus. Okay? They actually don't understand Jesus. And what Pastor Bruzek, I think, tried to do for the past few weeks was to push you back toward the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does he do? And what are the gifts he has in store for you? Okay? So that's what he tried to do the past few weeks. And you saw then, you know, he said you can't split Jesus. It's, not, you know, it's law and gospel. He says one word, two ways. But you can't put those against each other. You can't put justification and sanctification against each other. And if you do that, then you know, you're pitting Jesus against himself. So now that he's cleared up for us who Jesus is, James will clear up for us who the Christian is. Okay, This is just a natural progression. Once you know who Jesus is, now you know who you are in Christ. So look at your outline. The fullness of Christ. This is from last time. To artificially split Jesus is utterly in the way of the law. You remember the law is defined as something that oppresses. It's by force. It's against you. You are forcing Jesus to be what he is not. Okay, You are forcing Jesus to be what he is not. There is one Christ, divine and human, who speaks one word that can be said two ways, law and gospel. And he does one work, justification and sanctification. It's redemption. To bring his old creation to the new Eden, heaven on earth and heaven in heaven. Okay, The goal of the Christian life is to bring the Eden to come, to the present context. That's all the Christian life is about. To try to bring the Eden to come to our present context. So N.T. Wright says, Heaven on earth and heaven in heaven. Right now, you should be able to experience heaven on earth. Okay? That's what we're after. That's why there's lots of talk about community, about living the Christian life, because that's the way it'll be in Eden. Why shouldn't we have that now? Okay? So then, the fullness of the Christian. To artificially split the Christian is utterly in the way of the law. We are forced to be what we are not. There is one Christian, sinner and saint, simul justus et peccator, Lutheran say. One Christian, sinner and saint, who is redeemed in one way, justification and sanctification, and pushed out to live one life, a life of faith and works. Okay? So we're going to go on with St. James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through about 24. The very last page of your outline actually has the text. If you want to flip there, you can kind of follow along. Um, but I, I usually give you the verse and then kind of explain it for you. So James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, you know, Lutherans oftentimes will say, I'm saved by grace through faith. Yeah, faith alone. You know, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, right? Sola scriptura, by faith alone, grace alone, and scripture alone. And oftentimes, Lutherans will add, and Christ alone, okay? So we say you're saved by faith alone. James says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the question for James is this, can a split Christian, faith and not faith and works, can a split Christian really be considered a Christian at all? That is James' question. So you have their bold Reiki. I'm going to give you a few quotes along the way from Luther, from Scare, from Reiki. These are very helpful, but this is, a, this is brilliantly said. The author does not take issue with faith itself. The problem is not the faith. Okay? So no one go home and say, Pastor Gainick says faith is a bad thing. That's not it. Okay? The author does not take issue with faith, but with a superficial conception of it which permits faith to be only a formal confession. It's simply what you say. He desires to point out that a Christianity of mere words does not lead to salvation. Simply talking does not make one a Christian. The indicator of true Christianity then is a life of faith expressed through a life of good works. There are two parts to the Christian, faith and good works. Uh, John Kleinig, who is a professor in Australia, wrote the Leviticus commentary for Concordia Publishing House, will hopefully be here uh, in the fall. Uh, He's going to be in the area doing some, I mean, in the area, I mean, by the United States. You know, he comes from Australia. He'll be in the area uh, doing some other pastoral work, and, and I think he will be able to make it here. He, in talking about the Christian life, doesn't talk about good works. He talks about enactment or embodiment. Okay? which is a very different way of talking, but probably is the right way to talk. You don't just simply do good works. You embody the person of Christ. Okay, Now that has a very rich, that, that's very rich. That's not superficial. That's not, gosh, I'm baptized into Christ and Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live. Isn't that great? It's when people touch you, they actually touch Jesus himself. Okay? when they touch you, when they talk to you, they talk to Jesus himself. When they see what you do, they're witnessing Jesus Christ himself. You bear in your body, he envelops you, the person of Christ. So, James then, page two. If a brother or sister was poorly clothed, the Greek word there is naked, so you've got a naked brother or sister. It doesn't mean they don't have Gucci and Gap and whatever, it means they don't have clothes at all. And lacking in daily food, I would guess that probably means they don't have food at all. And one of them says to you, go in peace. And you'll note well that go in peace, at least for the early church and for you all, uh, comes right out of the liturgy. That's the dismissal the deacon always gave right after the Holy Supper. He communed you and he said, depart in peace. Go in peace. Peace be with you. Okay? So James is playing off the language of the liturgy. You all come to the liturgy. You repeat the language of the liturgy, and this is what you do to each other. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Okay, so let me give you another example. One of the worst things you can say to a sick person is this. Get well soon. Get better soon. In fact, I've I've been conscious of, you know, when I go see people, I try very hard not to say that, uh, especially when they're very ill, because if they could, they would. (laughs) So you leave the hospital room, you say, ah, get better soon. Or you see balloons, you know, five dollars a piece at the CDH gift shop, get better soon. You know, if they could, they would. But your speaking is not going to get it done. Only the Lord can speak realities. Only the Lord can say, be well, and someone is. So instead for you, for us, it is in the doing that people get well. Doctors, nurses, hospitals, Eucharist, oil, prayer, all the gifts the Lord has given to console and help the sick person. And the same is true with the Christian life. It's not simply about speaking, okay? It's not simply about speaking, it's about speaking and doing or speaking and enacting, or speaking and embodying. Talking without doing is of no avail. So James says, stop me at any point, we're moving quickly because we got a lot of verses to get through, but James says, so also faith by itself, faith by itself, if it does not have good works, is dead. This is great. The Greek word there, as you see on your sheet, is necra, which comes from necros. And you know necros, you know where that comes from? Remember what what, uh, chapter and verse? You just heard it this morning. Ephesians two, verse one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we talk all about this at new member classes and we talk all about this, especially given the milieu in which we live. We live right down the street from Billy Graham Center where Billy Graham at the end of every service says what to people? Make a decision for Jesus, right? It says make a decision for Jesus. And then they play, you know, just just as I am without one plea and people come forward and make a decision for Christ. Even growing up as a Lutheran, I can remember at the end of services, the pastor would say right before the benediction, we have prayer partners available. I should probably not say this on the radio. Talk all the time in the new members class. We tell all the people along the way, you can't decide for Christ. You're like a person on the ER table. ER is about to go off the off the telly, right? Is George Clooney back yet? I can't wait for that. I Tebowed that bad boy. All right, George Clooney's coming back, or was back at another hospital, right? Green came back in someone's dream. Is that right? Something like that. Whatever. I can't stay awake that late. Um, <laughs> But if you're on the ER table and you flatlined, what are the chances of you grabbing the paddles and shocking yourself? Slim to none and slim just left town, right? Slim to none and uh, there's no chance of, yeah, likely none. What are the chances of you saying to the doctor, put those bad boys on me and bring me back to life? Slim to none. And we always say it's the exact same thing with the Christian life. When you come to the font, as a unbeliever, as a child, as, even as an adult to a certain extent. Now, the Lord's worked on you, but when you come to the font, you are dead. And if this was the early Lord's Supper class, I'd have someone you know, pretend he was roadkill right here. We'd pour water on him, he'd hop up, and we'd say, that's how the Lord does his work. So we say all of that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were roadkill. You're oozing. You're smelly. You can never come back to life on your own. And then St. James says... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He uses the exact same word, necros. Faith without good works is smelly. It's roadkill, it's oozing. It cannot be brought back to life unless unless someone does the doing for it. I want you to see how important this is. What James is saying is, if you don't live a life of good works, your faith is roadkill, okay? I'm not making this up, this is James, Necros. Same word used in Ephesians 2.1, you heard it this morning, and it's the exact same word used in Luke 15, the prodigal son. Remember the boy comes back, the older boy says, I was around you all this time and you never threw a party for me. And the dad says to the, uh, to the elder son, this son of mine was lost and is found, he was dead and is now alive. The Greek word there for dead is Necros. he was roadkill, okay? Your faith is like the prodigal son without works. That makes sense? Everybody tracking? All right. So, scare then, a dead faith has all the organic parts of a living faith. It may look like a living faith, but has no movement and does not do anything. It is just there. The vital force is missing. So if we've got dead faith, if there is such a thing, you can even call it faith. If we've got dead faith, then we are back to where we were before our baptism. And baptism, you know, is the initial place of incorporation and participation, the theme of this Bible study. He brings you into his flesh, incorporation, and he invites you to participate in his life, right? Where our lifeless corpse stood in need of resurrection. Ephesians 2.1, Luke 15.32. So that's one part of it. Without a life of embodying Christ, faith is actually roadkill. But there's another aspect. We talked for a long time about how faith is in the subjective genitive. It's Jesus' faith. In fact, it's Jesus himself. If faith is Jesus... Luther called it fides Christo formata, faith formed by Christ. If faith is Jesus, then without some activity, good works, forgiven activity, he too is dead. Right? Because faith is necros. If Jesus is faith, then Jesus is necros. Can he really be living if he is not doing? Can Jesus really be living if he is not doing. The early church used to talk about the Eucharist this way. They would say, if there was ever a moment where the Eucharist was not being celebrated, Jesus would cease to exist, and so would the world. If there was ever a moment, so this very moment, at some place in the cosmos, the Eucharist is being celebrated. Because that's where Jesus breaks onto the scene and does his best work. And the Father said, if there was ever a moment, ever a moment, where the Eucharist ceased to be celebrated, even for a split second, Jesus would cease to exist, and the world would cease to exist as well. Jesus cannot be living unless he is doing. And if Jesus resides in your flesh, and you're not doing, if Jesus is your faith, he's filled you up, and you're not doing, and your faith is necros, Jesus is necros as well. He's dead, roadkill, smelly, oozy. And if he's roadkill, well, if he's roadkill, it's not good. Merry Christmas. If faith is Jesus, then without some activity, he too is dead. Can he really be living if he is not doing now, you'll see there a little thing right beneath that, a little citation from Matt Harrison, who's the Director of World Relief and Human Care. He, this was from, I think, his Christmas letter this year, um, where he, he cites an interview with Norman Nagel, who is Emeritus Professor at St. Louis. It's a great thing here on faith. If you don't believe me, you might believe Nagel. I vividly recall an interview done by Dr. Dr. Norman Nagel, Professor Emeritus of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, Missouri. The host asked, Dr. Nagel, tell us about faith. No, came the response. The startled host tried again. Dr. Nagel, can you tell us what faith is? No, I cannot, the professor said. I will not speak of faith, but I will speak of Christ. Or Luther. Christ is namely the object of faith, or rather not the object, but so to speak, the one who is present in the faith itself. Christ is the one who forms it, defines it, fills it, and energizes it. Your faith is not about you. That's why it's a subjective genitive in Galatians. Jesus does the verbs, faith is Christ. So you see there, Christ is our faith. So if our faith is dead, then Christ is dead. And we are responsible for his dying. You can sum up how the Lord works very easily. All the good verbs, all the verbs of salvation, Jesus does them. All the bad verbs, all the verbs of condemnation, all the verbs of killing, all the verbs of hatred, all the verbs of whatever, you do. Okay? Someone once said, Why does Jesus, you know, why does Jesus save some and not others? And I said, if you're saved, it's all the Lord's doing. And if you're damned, it's your own damn fault. Okay? All the va- bad verbs in Scripture are your doing. Killing Jesus, your doing but Jesus filling you up and energizing you and pushing you out and enabling you and allowing you to embody him. That is all Jesus doing. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Might be the way you talk to your Catholic friends. I have faith, you have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Or another way to say it, if faith is really Jesus, I'm sorry, we'll get to that in just a minute. The Christian life, the Christian life is not an either or. Either you have faith or you have works. Your faith is expressed by your works, and your works are enlivened by your faith. It's a both and. They go together. Or another way of saying it, if faith is Jesus, Jesus is expressed. He is delivered by your works. And your works are enlivened by your Jesus. Hey, do you understand that? Jesus is delivered by your works. When you live the Christian life, I don't mean you just go out and help somebody across the street. That may be it. I'm talking about living the rigor of the Christian life. All that that entails, as you heard this morning, obedience, suffering, you know, silence, death. When you live the Christian life, Jesus is delivered. And your works are enlivened by Jesus who gives you faith. So James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Yeah, that's a great thing but even the demons believe and shudder, okay? So don't think you're alone in all this. Faith is fine, but even the demons have the facts straight. Have you seen the screw tape letters? How many of you have seen the screw tape letters or read it? Brilliant, I just saw it last Sunday. I mean, if you you wanna know about what the demons and what Satan know, go see the screw tape letters. I mean, it is utterly apparent. They know all the details, they know all the facts, they know what he's doing, they know why he does it, um, and yet they can't bring themselves to do the same thing. So James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Yeah, even the demons believe that. Satan himself believes that. What separates you from a demon is that what you do has been drawn in by Christ, forgiven, and put to good use for the sake of the church and the world. It is utterly non-self-regarding. Our works are all about other people. Our works are a gift, both to us and to those to whom we do them. What demons do, which is different from a Christian, what demons do is unforgivingly done for their own good. It is done for their own good. It is utterly self-regarding. Their works are idle, okay? Their works are idle. They are all about themselves. Your works are all about other people. Luther, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. Your good works are all about other people. So he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? And again, you know, tend the tone there. Imagine if I said that, but I won't. James will. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Some manuscripts there use dead just to kind of reinforce the notion that faith, when it it isn't active, is actually necros. Let me give you an example, he says. Was not Abraham our father justified? good lutheran term dikaiu, justified made righteous by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed the word there is telio the same thing that jesus says on the cross it is finished and faith was completed perfected finished by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, okay? So he uses now the example of Abraham to show you what the Christian life is to look like. A life of faith and a life of good works. And he uses the slaughter of his son Isaac as the icon of a life of good works. So let's just, let's just remember the text. This was the text from a few Sundays ago and then from Wednesday. What Abraham believed, his faith, was that God would resurrect his son. So I'll give you a few examples here. Genesis 22, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, remember what's happened now. Sarah's had the baby. The baby's grown up. Guess how, how, how old do you think Isaac is? What do you think? Just give, shout out an age. What do you think? Mid-30s. Mid-30s okay. Seven. Who said Seven. Okay, seven, what else? Thirteen, all right. I think often, if you even if you read like a CPH book, oftentimes it looks like they've got this little Isaac, you know, almost like Emma's age, three and a half, four years old. And somehow Abraham coaxes him off to the you know to Moriah, and he's gonna do this deed, and his son doesn't see it coming. Not it at all. Luther says Isaac is twenty five. Josephus, who may be a more reliable source, says Luther is 30, or er, says Luther, says Isaac is 37. Okay, which puts a whole different spin on the story. This isn't a father coaxing his son off to a mountain with, you know, a lollipop. Let's go see what's going to happen. Ooh, the son doesn't know it. This is a man. So if he's 37, how old is his father? Yeah, in his hundreds. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's not a young man. So a 37-year-old, could he take his dad who's, you know, 130, 140? Maybe. Um, But it brings to light, then, what the scriptures say. Like a lamb, he went to the slaughter and did not open his mouth. How old's Jesus when he dies? 33. Being God in the flesh, could he overtake all those? He, He even says it. I could call down legions of angels. But he doesn't do it. You see how Isaac looks a bit like Jesus, okay? So, Abraham said to his young men, his servants, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. He doesn't say, I will come back to you. He says, and we will come back to you, which means he and the boy will return. Abraham believes, even though he is going to slaughter his son, somehow, some way, God will raise him from the dead. He doesn't believe he's going to get there and find a way out. Like, maybe I'll burn an animal and the Lord will see the smoke and say, oh, great, thanks for burning your son. He is fully intent on killing his son, but he believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will raise him from the dead. And Isaac said to his father, this is so good, my father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, Isaac's done this before. He's 37. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, comma, my son. This isn't like, oh, come on, my boy. God will provide the lamb. Don't worry about it. This is, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, and you, my son, are it. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, same word used in Revelation of the altar of the Lamb, Jesus' altar, and there, and there laid the wooden order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There is intensity in this act. If you go look at the Caravaggio of the sacrifice of Isaac, The old man has got his hand back with the knife, fully intent on killing his son. Again, it's not a little child, and it's not as though he gets to the mountain and says, let's hope for a way out. And he's pacing, and the Lord says, stop pacing, I'll give you a way out. He is ready to slaughter his son. He did what the Lord asked him to do. And in the Caravaggio, I think it's even called, the Lord prevents Abraham. The old man is in the act. And the angel pulls back Abraham's arm and stops him from slaughtering his son. So Abraham, one, believed in the Lord's promise, specifically the promise of resurrection. That's his faith. And two, he did as he was bidden by the Lord to do. He went off to slaughter his son. Abraham is the icon of the Christian life. He has faith, and he does what the Lord asks him to do. Yes, not at all. Nope. The question is, is there anything about Isaac that shows that he resisted his father? Actually, not at all. Um, In fact, every image of Isaac is completely, he's completely tied down. I mean, this is just just common sense. If he's 37, he could probably take his old man. Uh, But there's no, no one ever says, um, you know, no one ever says Isaac resisted. The Jews, you know what the Jews believe? It's actually not a bad thing. The early church believed, to a certain extent, that Abraham actually did kill his son, and God raised him from the dead on the altar, okay? Just like they say Jonah died in the whale. Jonah says, I went down to the depths of Sheol. That's the, the early church said that's, that's, that's death. Now, it doesn't say that in the text. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say he slaughtered his son, but the, but the Jews would say he killed his son, and God raised him from the dead, because that's what the Lord does. But there's no, there's no mention of his resistance. Again, to fulfill the scriptures, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And then what happens, he finds a ram, a male lamb, caught in thicket, wood, by his two horns. That remind you of Jesus on the cross? Remember Isaac going to his death? What does he do? He puts the wood for his death on his behalf. How long do they walk to his death? Three days. Yeah, it's all over the place. It's great. Go ahead. Because that's a proper sacrifice. That's a great question. The the question is, why does he bind Isaac? Because in the Old Testament, that's how you make a sacrifice. Even in Leviticus, you bind the animal, you put the animal on top, you do this. He he wanted to make it clear that Isaac is the sacrifice. So it wasn't a binding because he's about to get loose. I think it's a binding because he wants a proper sacrifice. We can go a minute or two longer. This is too much fun. Here we go. You see then, says James, that a person is justified by works, with faith, of course, is justified by works and not by faith alone. For St. Paul, this is the distinction between James and Paul. For St. Paul, the question is this, how do I know that I'm justified? How do I know that I'm justified? For James, the question is this, how does the world know that I'm justified? So James says, you've been baptized into Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Jesus who lives. James says, you've got faith. Now live the life that Christ has called you to live. Because James is engaged in a congregation who's being caught up with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they don't talk. They just do. (laughs) And they're saying, all you guys do is talk. How do we know that you're Christians? So James is saying, remember, it's not just about talking. It's about talking and doing." Okay? This is all about the context. James is trying to nudge his congregation and us toward living in the fullness of their humanity, rejoicing in the faith that was given as a gift and the gift which is given to others through their works. Jesus gives you himself. That's a gift. You give him to others. That's your work. Faith finds its fulfillment. It's, it's telos its Christological end in the daily living of the Christian life, okay? Faith is fulfilled in the Christian life. So then a great quote here from Luther, and this might make some of you nervous, but that's why we're going to end with it so I can close with the Lord's Prayer and go. (laughs) He, Jesus, fills us. How does he fill us? He gives us faith. He gives us himself. He fills us in order that everything that he is, everything that he is, and everything he can do might be in in us in all its fullness and work powerfully so that we might be divinized throughout, not having only a small part of God. It's not just bits and pieces or merely some parts of him, but having all his fullness so that all you say and all you think and everywhere you go, in some all your life, says Luther, is throughout divine. The proper preface for the ascension says he ascended into heaven in order to make us partakers of his divine nature. But anything that's not full blast is not in the way of the gospel. Jesus gives himself to you. I said it in the sermon this morning. He gives you all of himself. Every last bit of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is given to you as a gift, and it makes you divine. It makes you divine. That's where the life of good works come in. That's the life of a Christian. OK? Any, uh, any, any concluding questions? Yes, Why? Yeah. Question is, could and Paul- Maybe you comment next week or some other time. I know we're out of time here. Um, I think, yeah, the question, is, the question is briefly, could Paul say the same stuff as James? Uh, I think he could in theory. I think part of the trouble is the context in which he's writing and the group of people to whom he is writing. Um, so that plays a lot into it. But we'll look at that next week. We'll look at that next week as we, as we kind of move on. We're also gonna get to Rahab in the James text And that's a strange one. I mean, if you can imagine Rahab being an icon for the Christian life. There's a reason, though, she's included in Matthew's genealogy. There are very few women included in Matthew's genealogy. Rahab is one of them. Shows you how the Lord does his work, even through, uh, you know, some of the worst things in life. Okay? Anything else, briefly? All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven